This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China by Leda Hong Fincher. On the eve of International Women's Day in 2015, the Chinese government arrested five feminist activists and jailed them for 37 days. The Feminist Five became a global cause celeb, with Hillary Clinton speaking out on their behalf, and activists inundating social media with hashtag Free the Five messages. But the five are only symbols of a much larger feminist movement of civil rights lawyers, labor activists, performance artists, and online warriors, prompting an unprecedented awakening among China's educated urban women. In Betraying Big Brother, journalist and scholar Leda Hong Fincher argues that the popular, broad-based movement poses the greatest challenge to China's authoritarian regime today. Through interviews with the Feminist Five and other leading Chinese activists, Hong Fincher illuminates both the difficulties they face and their joy of betraying Big Brother, as one of the Feminist Five wrote of the defiance she felt during her detention. Tracing the rise of a new feminist consciousness now finding expression through the Me Too movement, and describing how the communist regime has suppressed the history of its own feminist struggles, Betraying Big Brother is a story of how the movement against patriarchy could reconfigure China and the world. Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China by Leda Hong Fincher, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Brazil is headed towards fascism by way of Jair Bolsonaro, a virulently sexist, homophobic, and violent militarist clown, nostalgic for a military dictatorship that butchered people not only in Brazil, but also throughout the region through its support for right-wing repression across South America. Bolsonaro, running a campaign soaked in bloody demands for state and vigilante violence, rocketed from the margins to a near-outright win in the first round of the October 7th presidential election, winning 46% compared to just 29% for Fernando Haddad, the candidate of the Workers' Party, or PT, who has so far been unable to replicate the political genius of former President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, better known as Lula. The stakes are high for Brazilian democracy. For the millions lifted out of poverty during the PT's 13 years in the presidency, for women and LGBT people who will suffer under patriarchal violence sanctioned from the top, and for the future of the planet as a whole, given the likelihood that Bolsonaro will sharply reverse gains made in stopping rampant deforestation in the Amazon. How did this happen? My guest today is Alfredo Sadfilo a professor of political economy at SOAS, University of London. Alfredo explains the roots of reaction on the right and collapse on the left, and the ultimately disastrous result of a PT governance strategy centered on accommodation with a capitalist order that could only last as long as the global commodity boom did. For those listening outside Brazil, I encourage you to follow the extensive coverage in The Intercept, which has a big team on the ground. 
I also encourage you to read a recent Jacobin article by Matthew Aaron Richmond, which I'll link to in the show notes. For anyone listening in Brazil, I want to extend my solidarity during these extraordinarily difficult and dangerous times. Before we get started, I only have the time to spend days speed reading about the history of Brazil and preparing for interviews like this because of listeners who support the podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. What's more, $5 a month gets you access to our newsletter with tons of additional analysis and ideas on the topics we discuss here on the show. $10 gets you a copy of either Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism or Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity. $20 or more a month, and I will send you a bunch of left-wing books. Okay, here's Alfredo Sadfilo. Alfredo Sadfilo, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Before we get into the historical roots of the present crisis, I'd like you to explain that crisis's human embodiment, Jair Bolsonaro, a profoundly violent far-right militarist who, when he voted to impeach former Workers' Party President Dilma Rousseff, took a moment to honor the men who tortured her when she was a political prisoner. In, in recent elections, Bolsonaro surged from the margins to almost winning the election outright in the first round, way ahead of the PT's candidate, Fernando Haddad. And the party that he adopted as his electoral vehicle went from one seat in Congress to 52. What's happening in Brazil? Since 2013, Brazil has seen a succession of uh, revolts um, that started from below, started from um, working class uh, people demanding improvements in public services. But these revolts were captured by the middle class and they were captured by uh, the right, the political right um, through the media, through a vigorous, persistent and radical media campaign to demoralize the left uh, and the PT and to associate the left and the PT with uh, political corruption. Um, Bolsonaro is the outcome of that. For many years uh, now, um, the right has used the tool of political corruption as a stick with which to beat the left in general and the PT in particular. Now, this has a context. In Brazilian uh, history, the political right has only ever been able to achieve mass traction by using corruption uh, as the uh, focus of its uh, attention or by using inflation as the focus of its attention. That, that's how it, they get, the, the political right gains legitimacy. Janio um, Quadros was, well, Getulio Vargas was uh, driven to suicide in 1954 around issues of corruption. Janio Quadros was elected president in 1960 around on a campaign against corruption. Um, President João Goulart was overthrown by a military coup in 1964 uh, with issues of inflation and corruption uh, at the forefront, plus Cold War um, concerns. Um, Fernando Collor was elected president in 1989. Around His entire campaign was based on uh, around corruption. Uh, and after the revolts of uh, 2013, corruption became a massively significant uh, front page issue uh, in Brazil. Uh, and this has been effective. 
But one of the unintended consequences of this process has been the delegitimization of the entire political system in Brazil. Um, so what you find in this uh, election is a polarization around a social democratic program uh, led by the PT and under the image of Lula, the most, by far the most popular politician in Brazil and the most talented political leader in Brazilian history. And I say this having criticized Lula's policies for many, many years, but you absolutely have to recognize this uh, on one side. And on the other side, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, who is uh, a, a fascist, uh, a man of no track record at all in anything he has achieved. He has failed at everything he has uh, tried to achieve. Uh, and in between these two uh, politicians or these two movements, you have an evaporated uh, political center that has been consumed in the flames that the right has set in order to uh, burn the PT. It did reach the PT. It harmed the, the left as a whole. It has been absolutely terrible from the point of view of the left, what has happened in Brazil in the past five years. But it has completely destroyed the political center with the parties of the center imploding. Mm. It, it really, for me, echoes Marx's 18th Brumaire, the way that the mainstream Brazilian right used the judiciary to destroy the PT to, for its own advantage, only to find that the process they had helped set in motion destroyed them as well and allowed for the rise of this militarist far right that displaced them. This is absolutely correct, and I think the analogy is, is, very, uh, is very appropriate. Now, Jair Bolsonaro is even more improbable as a successful candidate than Donald Trump, because Donald Trump was at least a known figure in the United States and a successful entertainer and TV presenter. Jair Bolsonaro was nothing. He was uh, a seven-term um, member of Congress who drew on the support of a fringe, a militaristic fringe in Rio de Janeiro. That was his constituency. Uh, and he launched himself to the presidency and no one took him seriously. And then suddenly, because the political system had lost legitimacy, because Bolsonaro managed to get around him, what was the, the, was the product of the convergence of several different currents of dissent, the current of dissent around corruption, very, very strong, as I uh, mentioned uh, before, the current of dissent around the issue of violence, urban violence in particular. Brazil had 60,000 murders last year. And this is not a new thing, but there is a perception that violence is becoming worse and worse, and there's a perception that it is out of control and that normal measures cannot resolve it, and definitely the judicial system cannot resolve it, and so you need a strong hand. And the strong hand must come from the military. Must, there must be a policy of physical elimination of um, anyone who's accused of crime. It's very similar to uh, Duterte in the, in the Philippines. Um, and there's the um, there's a drive to remove the state from the backs of people because the state has been associated with corruption, so it must be removed. And then you have an, a very radical neoliberal uh, political project grounded on Chicago boys. Uh, Paulo Guedes, Jair Bolsonaro's main uh, economics advisor, is a Chicago boy himself. And the analogy that is made within that camp is around uh, Pinochet. It, it, it's the policies of General Pinochet uh, in Chile. They're very open about this. So 
this is not good news on any front, uh, if you look at it. And I, I, I believe a Bolsonaro administration would be politically unstable from the start because he's incapable as a political leader. Uh, the Brazilian political system is very decentralized. It's very difficult to handle. Bolsonaro is not equipped to do this. Um, so I believe there would be a political and institutional crisis very, very soon uh, once he takes power. Bolsonaro's slogan, Brazil above all, God above everyone, really echoes that of the 1964 military coup that he so often praises. Is this where the deepest political roots of his political support lie in Brazil's quarter of a century long military dictatorship. In, in 1999, Bolsonaro called for a civil war that would kill 30,000 people, starting with the president at the time, Fernando Enrique Cardoso. Um, would a Bolsonaro presidency effectively be a vehicle for renewed military government under a democratic veneer? That is uh, plausible. But again, you see what what Bolsonaro's political trajectory has been like. He has specialized in making outrageous uh, statements. And there are plenty of absolutely unspeakable uh, brutality and violence at all levels. And this does refer back to the military coup, but it goes back much further than this. Brazil has always been a violent society. It is a slave society, and slavery leaves these marks in a society and in a political system, leaves these scars. So there is a a very violent um, aspect of Brazilian uh, institutions and Brazilian of, of the Brazilian political system. Bolsonaro thrives exactly on on this uh, vein of uh, violence and misogyny and authoritarianism where order must must be maintained and it has to be maintained by force, by naked, absolute brutal force. It is the logic of slavery uh, once again. So all these um, statements that he makes echo traditional themes in Brazilian uh, politics, and they will be recognized by everyone as something that is legitimate, a a line of thinking that is legitimate, it is understandable, uh, or that has some plausibility in the context of this uh, this country. So, uh, but once again, similar to Donald Trump, the more outrageous your statements are, the more they captivate a particular fringe of the electorate that in the case of Bolsonaro has managed to congregate two very different areas of society. One is capital. Capital was looking for an alternative to the PT and to Lula. They would not have gone through with the coup of 2016 just to see the PT being elected again. So they were openly looking for a viable candidate. There was no one else. So they grouped around Bolsonaro. And this is a very recent move. And on the other hand, you have masses of poor people who feel insecure, are indignant about corruption, are legitimately so, uh, who feel uh, unsafe in um, on Brazilian streets and at, and at home because of violence, and who want to find a way out of um, a trap, a, a political crisis that is seeming to uh, that apparently has no end uh, in sight. And Bolsonaro has the ring of plausibility in his statements, the the the, the ring of easy solutions to complicated problems. But the problem is, but one of the problems is that the, his solutions do not work. But until we get to that point, well, he's thriving on an easy discourse 
um, that still appeals to many people. Mm. Will Bolsonaro's rise force a revision of standard accounts of Brazil's transition to democracy, both in terms of the transition's political foundations and also the neoliberal program that formed its economic base? I think um, there was a perception um, that constitutional democracy was entrenched in Brazil after the constitution of 1988. The country had faced turbulence, um, repeated scandals of corruption, the election of Fernando Collor, who was impeached um, two years uh, into his uh, time in office, uh, the transition to uh, from Fernando Henrique Cardoso to Lula, the re-election of Lula, the election of Dilma Rousseff, all these processes involved some element of turbulence, but increasingly the military were outside of political life and there was a perception that the, the, the constitutional rules had become entrenched. And this was false. So absolutely false. From 2013, all these perceptions fell apart one by one uh, the center-right decided to overthrow, Dilma, to overthrow Dilma Rousseff, and they went for it, and they eventually succeeded on absolutely spurious grounds. Uh, and from then on, it has been a sequence of improvisations that have opened the space for the military to return to political life in Brazil. It is a historical tragedy. But, and then it is possible that we will look back at this period of time, these 30 years, or a bit less than that, of democracy and relative stability, and we'll think that this was an exception. This was this was not the rule. Brazil is now perhaps plausibly going back to what it tends to be an unstable um, republic with extremely concentrated power uh, and a continuing war against the poor uh, waged through the tools of the state. Let's turn to the more recent historical context. You write that a commodity boom, what's called a super cycle of high commodity prices, made the PT's model of governance possible. And this, of course, is a story that played out across Latin America's pink tide governments. And in Brazil, you argue that the boom allowed the PT to make vast improvements, really concrete, real improvements in poor people's lives through things like conditional tr- cash transfers. But but it allowed them to do so without fighting to change the reigning political economic order in the country, which is a system of accumulation that delivers spectacular wealth to Brazilian elites. And so once the boom went bust, the conditions that allowed for the PT's accommodation collapsed. And your argument, I think, is that this not only destroyed their economic program, but also left them incredibly politically weak at the moment when they needed strength. Um, first with Dilma's impeachment and now with, with Bolsonaro's likely election. They, they needed a powerful base that their own political economic program had already demobilized. Explain the PT's model, which was so contingent on an economic moment that couldn't last. It was a model that was based on a notion of looking for the path of least resistance uh, at all times a path of conciliation of interests and a path of distribution of gains to everyone. Now, the poor gained um, disproportionately uh, through cash transfer programs, through the creation of employment, 
through uh, the, a rising minimum wage uh, in Brazil. And this was a period of unparalleled uh, prosperity for the bottom strata of the population and, and, and the only period in recorded um, Brazilian history where the distribution of income improved, which it did. For the rich, it was also a very comfortable period. Uh, financial gains uh, were plentiful. Um, domestic industry was subsidized by the government. Uh, domestic capital was supported in, in every way. The middle class did not lose out um, as such, but they were squeezed. They lost out in relative terms. They lost out by seeing the rich gain more and more, and they lost out by seeing the poor uh, gain uh, disproportionately and approach the middle class. So you had a tremendous expansion of uh, university education in the country that benefited primarily the poor for the first time large numbers, millions of poor people could go to university. Poor people had money uh, and credit to buy uh, consumer goods. They could buy cars, they could travel um, by aeroplane uh, around the country. You would see poor people in shopping centers. Uh, you'd see poor people in private health facilities. And this was, to the Brazilian middle class, a tremendous uh, offense against their um, sense of propriety and social hierarchy. They had this disgust um, at any notion of any sort of social equality with their inferiors. Uh, exactly. Brazil is not a society of citizens. It, it is not. It is, again, uh, a slave society that has moved on uh, away formally from slavery, but where social inequality is very deeply uh, ingrained. It is a deeply racist society, and race is very closely associated with uh, income uh, in the country. So once the external engine of the economy stalls after the crisis of 2007, 2008, after the Chinese economy starts well slowing, that recovers, but then starts slowing down and the commodity boom is over from 2011 around the world, then the Brazilian economy loses the main uh, engine of growth uh, and there is no more money to be distributed in the way that was being done before. And once this happens, frustrations accumulate. This is soy, uh, oil. So it's soy, it's uh, oil, it's iron ore, it's primary uh, commodities, minerals and uh, agricultural commodities um, that are extracted in the country. Uh, and they, 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 start, they, they occupy an increasing share of the national um, outputs and of uh, Brazilian exports. Um, so Brazil positions itself underneath China in the International Division of Labor. China is now has overtaken the United States and the European Union as Brazil's main trading partner. But Brazil exports primary goods to China, unprocessed agricultural commodities and minerals, uh, to import manufactured goods, exactly what Brazil used to do in the 1920s with Europe and the United States. So now the country finds itself uh, once again locked in this uh, position um, but underneath a giant, absolute giant of a country that does have an industrial policy and is advancing uh, in its positioning in the world and in the global division of labor. Brazil is uh, quite likely in this uh, subaltern position for a very long time. It will be very difficult, given the state of the country, to develop policies that can take Brazil uh, back onto a sustained trajectory of economic growth. But because the model that they have at the moment, and that existed before the PT, but that the PT in government continue with this model because they did not want to rock the boat. It was the road of the path of least uh, resistance. 
Uh, this model does not create uh, highly skilled jobs. It may create many jobs, but in urban services, and these jobs are poorly paid. It is a model that does not create an, a manufacturing sector that is sophisticated and high tech. It does not generate new technologies uh, for uh, or within the the country. It is a model that is uh, not appropriate for a country that is going to converge with the advanced economies. Brazil has stopped converging 30 years ago, and it's keeping pace, but no more than this. Uh, it's not a, a, an economy that tends to grow fast anymore. This is a tragedy for a country. And the political consequences of this model for the PT? Continuing political instability, the PT was never, because the PT chose never to confront politically its adversaries, the PT could not grow and it could not become a very large political party. So it was the largest political party in Brazil, um, but it is a political party that never had more than 20% of seats in Congress. Uh, the Brazilian Congress is very divided. The current Congress has 30 political parties in it. So it is because of the uh, electoral um, law and the way political parties are constituted in Brazil, it is extremely difficult to obtain a majority in Congress. It is impossible, essentially. Uh, and since the new constitution, um, the new democratic constitution, that's the way the political system has been engineered. It is a presidential system based on coalitions uh, in Congress. So it is very difficult to govern the country, and it is only possible to govern by making concessions. So naturally, this type of arrangement slides into political corruption. The PT never confronted that. The PT never attempted bold um, economic policies because you wouldn't be able to do this through a very large coalition that you need anyway. Uh, the PT never mobilized masses of people in support of its uh, program and its uh, distributional demands because mobilization would destabilize coalitions in Congress. So the PT adapted to conventional politics and put itself into a position where it was defenseless once the opposition or, or once the parties of the, some parties of the coalition turned into opposition parties. So the PT was trapped by the institutionality that it chose to follow. And in the long term, it proved to be a tragedy for the party. So the PT is competitive today uh, in these uh, elections, but it has declined enormously in Congress. It has declined enormously in terms of the positions that it occupies at city level and at, at state level. And it is a party, it is a party in decline. It is a party in frank decline, just like the Brazilian left is in decline. And it's difficult to overemphasize the role played by Brazil's incredibly weak party system. And also, combined with that, this legislature that is so that's deeply unrepresentative, even, I believe, compared to the United States, which is infamously unrepresentative. It's a system, as I understand it, that since the transition to democracy has always required the governing party, the party that holds the presidency, to buy votes in one way or another, either with cash or through allowing the entry of opposition parties into the government in huge numbers. This is correct. It is a very uh, fragmented political system. Parties have been vehicles for personal advancement. Um, 
and it has traditionally been very easy to found a new political party in Brazil in the name of democracy and freedom, uh, freedom of expression and freedom of political organization. So you have a proliferation of uh, political parties, the vast majority of which have no program to speak of, and they are simply um, attempts to get organized to extract money from the public purse. So it is an intrinsically corrupt political system. So it's no wonder that you have successive scandals of corruption emerging uh, constantly, uh, degrading the image of uh, democracy itself, degrading the image of the uh, legislature, and making it extremely difficult to govern. So going back to Bolsonaro, this is the situation that confronts, that will confront Bolsonaro should he be elected president. He uh, takes power in an extremely fragmented political system. Now, notice, it is a Congress that is fragmented across 30 political parties, but two-thirds of the members of Congress are aligned with the far right. Not, not just the right, but with the far right. So Bolsonaro initially has this... And that includes the Ruralista Caucus? Oh, yes, absolutely. It includes uh, them. It includes uh, the caucus... Authority. Who are basically agro-industrial caciques. More or less, in more or less uh, capitalistically advanced areas of the country, but absolutely committed to landed property and the privilege that comes with it. Uh, connected to this, there's the Evangelical Caucus that has uh, a very large number of members of Congress divided into different sects, but they are all unified around the political right and against abortion in particular, uh, against gay rights, a very conservative political platform. Uh, and you have the um, the caucus of the gun, the 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 the, the, the caucus that defends uh, the weaponization of the country and and the freedom to to bear arms. Now uh, these are far right um, uh, caucuses. There's a large group of entrepreneurs on the right, etc. So Bolsonaro has a sympathetic audience in Congress. But he still needs to do deals uh, with them. And Bolsonaro is not cut to do deals. He's not fit to do that. So he has announced that instead of doing what previous governments have done and appoint uh, a sample of members of different political parties to positions of prestige and power in his administration, ministries and so on, he's going to appoint military men. As if the army had the solution to the problems of the country, which they do not. And I believe the most sensible Factions within the army will realize that this is this is a trap. Um, to bring the army into politics will politicize the army and quite possibly turn it into something similar to the Mexican army that has been destroyed uh, internally by corruption, by drug trafficking, by scandal. Um, so even if you are a rational uh, military person, you should not be tempted by this route. But Power is uh, very attractive, um, and it's quite possible that the army will be tempted. But this, again, will not bring political stability because policy failures are inevitable. There continues to be no engine for the global economy. There continues to be no engine for the Brazilian economy. So they may, the government may sell assets. The government may engineer a financial bubble, but this will not last. And how Bolsonaro will handle uh, economic difficulties uh, is a big question mark, how Bolsonaro will deal with a Congress that will inevitably become fractious and difficult to navigate. That is another question. How Bolsonaro will negotiate with the judicial system. The judiciary has become incredibly autonomous in the past uh, decade 
well-resourced, completely autonomous. The judiciary does whatever it wants, whatever it wants to do, trespassing into the executive and into the legislature. How is Bolsonaro going to deal with that? It's unclear that he has got the talent, the experience, the capacity to do this. So again, I believe that the future for Brazil uh, immediately is one of political instability. Looking back to 2003 when Lula first took office and from then on, did the PT have to engage on the status quo's rotten terms? Or did they have options when they were at the peak of their power, perhaps through extra-parliamentary means to fight to remake the system, the very foundations of the system and the rules of the game. When the PT won the presidential elections in 2002, they were in many ways already trapped by the political system and by the political choices they made. They made a series of alliances to get to power, and you can't just unmake those alliances. You can't just wish them away. Uh, However, economic prosperity gave the government additional degrees of freedom. And Lula did use some of those degrees of freedom in his second administration to adopt more nationalist and more developmental economic policies and more um, and bolder social policies too. And Dilma Rousseff did the same, pushing the limits of the system even further. But it was possible to, to do more. It was possible to involve mass organizations into policymaking. It was possible, I think, um, to be uh, bolder and to, ref- and, and to pass a reform of the media that would have broken or tamed a little bit the power of the right-wing media in Brazil. It would have been possible to put the judiciary uh, under some limitations so that they couldn't simply launch themselves into uh, uh, an initiative to overthrow the government in alliance uh, with the media and with, in sections of Congress. It would have been possible to do a political reform a little bit harder, but possible in principle to do a political reform to control party political funding and reduce the corruption that is endemic in the Brazilian system. So it was possible to do more. I'm not sure how much more, uh, because still you would have to pass these measures in Congress, but it would have been possible to be bolder and to do more than what the PT has achieved. So they failed uh, also for timidity, not because they were too far left, too radical. They were not. They, if they failed, it was because they were too moderate. On that note, you argue that a critical failure took place in 2013 when there were massive protests led by the radical left Free Fair Movement, which was initially against hikes in public transit fares in Sao Paulo. Explain this movement and why the PT's response was so disastrous. The movement uh, emerged spontaneously. That was the end of the boom uh, under the second administration of uh, Lula. And quite suddenly, you find masses of people on the street protesting, initially because of an increase in public transport fares. Uh, But rapidly, the protests spread out and they became protests about many, many different things, lots of different dissatisfactions uh, emerging on the street. And these protests were immediately captured by the media that turned them into what they were not, uh, protests against corruption and against the government of the PT. But once you start advertising these protests as such, they started to attract a mass of dissatisfied members uh, of the middle class uh, into them. And that led to the emergence of a mass far right uh, in Brazil for the first time in half a century, a far right that is mobilized, that is on the street, that is campaigning for its own uh, platform 
of um, destruction of the left and for the immobilization of the administrations uh, of the PT. Um, Dilma Rousseff attempted to respond to those protests through her proposal for a constitutional uh, convention to reform part party political funding and reduce corruption, but that proposal was immediately shot down by her own vice president and by uh, leaders of the coalition, the government coalition in Congress. And her own vice president was Michel Temer, just to clarify. It was Michel Temer. Who is a uh, who is the right wing current president? <laughs> exactly. Yes, the person who would take the initiative to push. Dilma Rousseff out of office. So they shot down the this the proposal for a constitutional uh, change because, of course, there were vested interests in maintaining the status quo. Uh, and Dilma Rousseff was immobilized. She lost political capital. She realized she couldn't push her ideas in Congress. There was no mass movement to back her up. And she was cornered and eventually became lost additional amounts of political space. And it became impossible to continue to govern the country. So it was there was treason at the top, uh, but there was a disconnect between the Workers' Party and the mass movements in Brazil uh, throughout the years of the PT in office, and that came back to haunt the Workers' Party. And is that disconnect in part rooted in the manner in which wealth was redistributed under the PT through these more individualizing methods like uh, Bolsa Familia? That is quite plausible in uh, the longer term. The PT implemented with great success um, social policies that are uh, based on cash transfers and transfers of money as opposed to uh, improvements in public services. And Lula realized this. Now, the, the transfers themselves were very successful. They reduced poverty, they improved living standards, they um, channeled resources to the poorest areas in the country, led to a flourishing of the economy in those areas because finally there was money around to buy things. Uh, so great benefit to family agriculture in the Northeast, for example. Um, that was very, very positive. The programs were uh, only small, but they were very, very good. Um, but Lula himself recognized the deficiencies towards the end of his um, period in office. He mentioned that if you go inside the houses of the poor, you notice that everything has changed. Not because people now could have had money to buy fridges and computers, and everybody has a mobile phone. Et so inside the house, everything is different. But once you walk out of the house, everything is the same. Infrastructure continues to be derelict. There is insufficient public uh, transport provision. Um, the roads are chock-a-block with um, automobiles. Uh, it, it's not a very favorable environment in terms of public investment and looking after people. There were improvements in, in health and education, etc. But you get the picture. There was a disproportionate improvement. Uh, through the acquisition of individualized consumer goods uh, in contrast with improvements in social uh, provision. And that was, again, something that was demanded in 2013. Um, the, the country had got to the limits uh, of what it could bear under that particular model of development, and the PT did not realize that. They did not realize that there had to be a shift, that the, the country needed more public investment in um, goods and services that are consumed in common, like transport and, and, and health and education and improvements in quality of provision. 
And as they neglected to do this, uh, once again, the PT was trapped uh, and lost prestige uh, very rapidly. It reminds me in a in a somewhat different way, but a similar sort of process in of how the the material foundations of the built environment that resulted from the New Deal in the United States laid the laid the foundations for a conservative politics that would ultimately form a reaction against the New Deal coalition. And it's I think it's important to to think through the the political implications of how of how different sorts of redistribution schemes play out. This is correct. But I again I think the the Workers Party did not realize what they were doing in this in this sense. They did not realize the consequences. They realized the improvements that were being uh, offered to the majority of the population. They realized that the poor were advancing and rewarding the Workers' Party with votes, but they didn't realize the limitations. Now, one of the political limitations of this type of model was that the the additional votes that the PT was getting were votes from the poorest strata in society that, once again, 18th Brumaire, as you mentioned before, uh, these are disorganized sectors. So once the tide, the political tide turned and the PT was under attack, these social groups were unable, incapable, not organized to defend the party, to defend the presidency uh, and to secure uh, the prominence uh, of the PT as a large political organization in the country. It simply could not happen anymore. So moving on from 2013, Dilma nonetheless won re-election in 2014, decisively but with a much narrower margin than in 2010. And she ran on a left platform, but after her re-election in response to economic crisis, imposed austerity and interest rates went through the roof, which pushed, pushed the economy into a major recession. This seems to echo your analysis of the failures of 2013 in that the PT alienated its base while failing to appease elites and capital. Can you explain how Dilma's economic policies in her second term late helped lay the groundwork for the present crisis? Dilma herself realized in uh, 2013 that she was isolated, isolated from capital, isolated from uh, Congress, isolated from the media. She managed to win the elections, the, her re-election um, at the end of 2013 and to move on to uh, the presidency. Um, but in a, in, a, in, a, in a very weak position because she won in the poorest areas in the country. She won among the, amongst the disorganized poor. And she knew that her uh, economic program was no longer acceptable uh, to capital. So she announced already in the campaign trail, or even before uh, the, the campaign uh, heat up, that she was going to change her minister, minister of finance. Uh, and she did, and appointed instead of the uh, Guido Mantega, who was a developmentalist, who was, had been in government since the time of Lula, she appointed, she went to uh, Bradesco, one of Brazil's largest conglomerates, and spoke to the um, president of Bradesco, uh, someone who had supported the government until then, and asked that uh, individual to, to select, essentially to select the next minister of finance. And, 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 and he appointed somebody from the top management of uh, Bradesco. So Joaquin Levy was, became minister of finance, tasked with implementing a conventional uh, adjustment, um, economic adjustment program, 
to not only adjust the economy itself, but in the hope of bringing credibility with capital and save the administration in, in that sense, in that political sense. But it was impossible to do this. Uh, Joachim Levy did not have the support of the left. The PT itself sabotaged his um, political uh, measures. Uh, and Capital waited for a little bit and then lost patience with Dilma Rousseff and with uh, Joachim Levy, withdrew support uh, to them and adopted a much more confrontational line that the government was lost that the existence of that government was 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 an attack against capital uh, and that the situation was unsustainable. Levy had to resign, um, and essentially the government was adrift uh, from then on, trying to make compatible, incompatible interests, trying to protect social programs, trying to protect some measure of developmental policies, but at the same time trying to implement uh, conventional neoliberal adjustment policies. It was an impossible, untenable position. As long as there is no external driver to the Brazilian economy, you cannot make incompatible interests uh, accommodate. It's, it's very, very difficult to do this. So the government um, hit the rocks for lack of policies, lack of resources to implement its policies, for inability to bring together incompatible interests and Brazil finds itself in the situation that it is now. The, the deepest economic crisis in Brazilian history uh, has gone. The economy is lying flat. It's not growing. It has contracted. It uh, for, contracted for three or four years. It's now flat for the past two years. Um, unemployment is very high. There's a sense of hopelessness, uh, especially in the part of the youth uh, and in, by low, on the part of low-paid workers. There's no obvious way by which the Brazilian economy is going to resume uh, growth. Uh, it is stuck in a middle-income trap. It is stuck in a trap of the early deindustrialization or premature deindustrialization with no clear project, no clear national project uh, or way to proceed. This is, again, tragic for a large country. I want to ask you about industrial policy. Um, sociologist Daniel Adana Cohen told me that there's one argument that Dilma made a good faith effort in her first term to do industrial policy, but it stepped too much on the toes of the elite. In this view, Dilma's effort was misguided and flawed, but right-minded. There's a second position, also important and on the left, that holds that Dilma basically tried to buy support for her industrial policy from manufacturers by dumping shocking amounts of money on them, which they gobbled up but betrayed her anyways. What's your assessment of Dilma's industrial policy during her first term? Dilma Rousseff attempted to implement the policies that were most uh, appropriate to the accumulation of industrial capital in Brazil. She was following absolutely the economic program of the uh, Industrial Federation of the State of Sao Paulo. The largest businessman in Brazil gave her an economic program, and that is what she uh, implemented. Lower interest rates, government reduced interest rates. Subsidies to strategic industries, government subsidized strategic industries. It went on and on, a whole menu of policies that were suggested by industrial capital, because for the, from the point of view of Dilma Rousseff, it was a case of bringing together domestic capital and the organized working class 
around a national pro development project that would take Brazil uh, into a, a high growth uh, trajectory based on um, policies that are established in the literature as kind of good industrial policies that can bring um, outcomes in the form of rapid economic growth. It did not work. It did not work because the implementation of these policies implies a degree of acceptance and subordination that Brazilian capital simply uh, refuses. Uh, it didn't work because lower interest rates, uh, eventually the businessmen realized themselves, lower interest rates hit them because industrial capital is heavily entangled with financial interests and they capture a lot of their profits from uh, financial speculation. So they were making more profits in their industrial operations, but losing money on, on the financial side. Um, they uh, revolted against the government's uh, attempts to direct investment to particular areas of the economy. The neoliberal ideology is very strong now in that respect, and capital wants absolute autonomy to do whatever it wants. Uh, but at the same time, it wants subsidies uh, and no accountability for their use of the subsidies. So the Rousseff administration increasingly became tangled up in a set of failures and in a, set of, in a sequence of attempts to uh, implement a policy that in principle should have been welcomed by capital, but in practice was rejected by capital uh, itself. It is shocking, uh, but true that this was the best shot at an organized set of economic policies that Brazilian uh, capital has had in many, many years, um, and it failed completely for reasons that were not to do with the incompetence of the administration or the mistakes uh, in the policies themselves. They were to do with politics and the loss of the external driver of the Brazilian economy. Given the modesty and system conformity of the PT's program, what accounts for this uniform viciousness of the political, economic, and media elite's hostility. I think that's something I've had a hard time wrapping my brain around. Once again, it's, it's a matter of power. It's not a matter of economic growth. The economy may grow, uh, and in that case, capital will tolerate an interloper in the presidency, uh, such as Lula, but Lula is an extraordinarily um, agile political operator. He's very, very good at bringing uh, in different interests together. Dilma Rousseff was not like that. And in the context of low economic growth, then the imperative of power becomes very, very strong. Uh, if there is no growth, at least I want to maintain the monopoly of power. That was the logic of uh, capital. So prepared to be a little bit more flexible in the issue of power as long as there was lots of money flowing in that direction through economic growth. But Dilma Rousseff failed to uh, maintain economic growth, not through her own fault, but because circumstances were ad adverse and, and many um, the, the government stumbled around many different issues. Um, so it goes back to who is in charge. And in the case of Brazil, once again, a slave society at heart, not um, the, the, the distribution of any aspect of power became absolutely unacceptable for the traditional uh, elites and the middle class. So the fact that the Brazilian economy has been lying flat for uh, several years now and that the after the uh, overthrow of Dilma Rousseff, economic perform performance did not improve, that this does not matter in the least because the elites have recovered the power that they had before. 
Let's talk about Lava Jato or the car wash corruption investigation and scandal, which we've referred to a few times. It ended up jailing Lula and a lot of other politicians as well. To to what degree was this the, the result of new powers given to the judiciary in recent years and to the judiciary's kind of neutral technocratic operations? And to what extent was this an explicitly political hit from a nakedly political judiciary on the PT? It was a naked hit by a political judiciary. Uh, There were scandals of corruption, but they were investigated in a very uh, different way, depending on where they came from. The judiciary used every tool in its box uh, in order to uh, entrap the PT, plus a few uh, autonomous operators that had become inconvenient. But essentially, the entire goal of the operation was to uh, hit the the PT as a party and Lula as an individual. Now, Lula has been found guilty, uh, even though there's absolutely no proof of anything that he may have done um, as as president or as a political agent. Uh, No proof of... Dilma was impeached for budget irregularities by politicians with concrete accusations of corruption against them. Oh, absolutely. Yes. The the accusations that got Dilma Rousseff, she was never accused of corruption. Um, she was accused of a violation, a technical violation of the uh, fiscal uh, responsibility laws in the country and then the constitution. That was a, an absolute complete stretch of uh, the interpretation of the constitution and the law. It was, in essence, a vote of no confidence on a president that was unpopular at that point in time. But this is not the way constitutional democracies are supposed to work. If you have a presidential system, you win the election, you're allowed to govern. And this was Congress. It's not a parliamentary system. It's not a parliamentary system. It never was in Brazil. So this was absolutely a naked political uh, power grab. Um but it worked because there was a sufficient majority and the media, the judiciary and Congress were operating sufficiently in tandem that they could get to that uh, to that point. One more historical question before we finish up by, by just talking about what's coming next. The, the current president, of course, is Michel Temer, because thanks to the PT having been become ensnared in this horrendous party system that we've already discussed, he was Dilma's vice president. What role has Temer and his agenda played in the decomposition of the political order underway? An enormous role. Michel Temer was always a a, a very skilled political operator to to keeping his party together. His party is very heterogeneous, very fractured. He kept the party together through the distribution of cash, uh, not through ideology. His organization has no particular ideology. The Temer administration got into power with a, an extraordinarily unwieldy center-right coalition uh, that functioned on the basis of the implementation of a radical uh, neoliberal um, economic uh, program. Uh, and in doing this, um, bulldozing uh, over the opposition, not admitting any form of uh, political debate uh, in the country. Uh, and at the same time, while this uh, area of economic reform marched well uh, under this administration, nothing else has been achieved. No constructive policies have been uh, in place. Uh, and the um, the way in which the administration has managed to stabilize itself in power has continued to be the traditional forms in Brazil, distribution of cash, distribution of favor, uh, favors, distribution of, of, of appointments. 
uh, together with the autonomy for those appointees to do what they want to do uh, with the power that comes with that position. Um, this is the way politics operates uh, in Brazil. In the context in which uh, Michel Temer um, came into office, this contributed to a, an accelerated process of demoralization uh, of the political system. So once again, you look at the outcome of these uh, elections, Michel Temer's own political party has been virtually destroyed. Their candidate got 1% uh, of the votes uh, in the first round of the uh, election. The PSDB, the traditional uh, opposition uh, in the center-right, got 4%, less than 5%. So these political forces are uh, essentially inoperative uh, many political operators of the of both parties have been found to be corrupt. Some are in jail, but the majority are not, because the prosecution system has been biased towards uh, the, the the PT to 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 prosecute accused um, criminals connected to the Workers' Party. But it's evident that these parties associated with Michel Temer and his coalition are deeply enmeshed in a web of corruption that is absolutely scandalous. And so they, they cannot defend the, 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 the positions that they have taken in terms of the coup itself. It's very difficult to provide a justification for what they have done. I want to talk finish up by talking concretely about what a Bolsonaro presidency might look like if it unfortunately comes to pass. Um, first, on the question of, of, of security and violence, Matthew Aaron Richmond wrote in Jacobin, quote, The uncomfortable truth is that a hidden and diffuse paramilitary war against proletarian criminals is already a reality in Brazil. While parties of the left and mainstream right publicly condemn such acts, Bolsonaro defends them. Indeed, by loosening gun controls and removing legal constraints, on police violence, he wants to make this secret war official and to escalate it. Explain a little bit about what we can expect to see with Bolsonaro in terms of, of, of violence in the streets, both vigilante and official. I think what, what you have described is absolutely correct. It, the um, administration uh, will uh, likely, if Bolsonaro follows through with his rhetoric so far, uh, on which he has been consistent, will unleash a wave of um, crime committed by the nominal forces of order uh, with a guarantee of impunity, again, very similar to the Philippines. So the first thing that I think will happen and continuing with the, the political violence we have witnessed in this uh, electoral campaign, uh, the first thing that will happen is a bloodbath uh, affecting poorer areas uh, in the country with a guarantee of impunity. Uh, on the perpetrators. And this is uh, terrible. It will affect the poor. It will affect the social base that is now preparing to vote for Bolsonaro. It will uh, bring the country or make the country even more divided than it already is. It will bring instability. It will shock and offend uh, a large number of people. And it will please uh, many others who believe honestly or not, that the response to violence is through uh, even greater levels of uh, unruly violence uh, by the forces of the state and by paramilitary forces. So this, this is not good, and it's not going to end well uh, for the poor, for the left, uh, and for the majority of the population. 
Another key issue that seems really central to Bolsonaro's political identity is his violent masculinity, which, as we've discussed, includes extraordinary sexism and homophobia. He even, I read, warns of the, quote, deconstruction of heteronormativity. How would you assess the gender politics behind his rise? And what would his presidency mean for women and LGBT people in Brazil? Bolsonaro brings up the worst of Brazilian society. Um, For um, LGBT uh, people, it's absolutely bleak. There there have been already reports in the media of numerous attacks uh, against gay people or trans people on on the streets, Uh, absolute violence uh, leading uh, leading to death. And this will only intensify. For women, it's, this is the policy uh, of the far right and the policy of the evangelical churches. The women belong in the home, and women are naturally subordinate to their uh, husbands. And it, it is Brazil is continues to be a very conservative country. Abortion is absolutely forbidden under almost any circumstances, for example. And this is a, a touchstone for for the far right and for the evangelical t- churches. So we can anticipate a continuing rollback of the conquests of uh, women in recent years. Uh, we can anticipate that there will be less space for the legislation protecting women in, in that are trapped in violent marriages, for example. Brazil has good legislation and has a police service that is dedicated to this particular type of violence. We can expect that this will be rolled back. We can expect new forms of violence to uh, to emerge, uh, lower protections in the labor market, and an overall increase in discrimination uh, across the across the society. So uh, once again, it's a, the route towards division, social division, uh, and discrimination against the weak, discrimination against the um, constructed minorities that, in fact, add up to the majority uh, of the country. It's absolutely tragic. Uh, under uh, a uh, almost overtly fascist uh, administration. It also seems clear that his presidency would be utterly disastrous in terms of deforestation in the Amazon, not only for the people who live in the Amazon, but for the entire planet. The, The PT wasn't perfect, but it did make enormous progress in curbing deforestation. By contrast, Bolsonaro says that environmental policy is suffocating the country He's pledged his fealty to the ruralist agro-business barons. He has promised to fold the environmental ministry into the uh, pro-agro-business agriculture ministry. And he's dismissed indigenous land claims, which might get in the way of all of this extraction and development. This is true. And it's not even in the name of a developmental project. It's in the name of power, power at the local level, power in your own farm, power to chop down these trees because you want to, because you want to sell the wood or because you want to extract minerals. Uh, It is about power, not about uh, development. Across the board, it is subordination and the restoration of power and privilege. And the power to execute an indigenous or environmental activist if they get in your way. Oh, absolutely. Yes. With, with, no, with no hesitation and, and a virtual promise of impunity uh, for doing this. 
the Brazil has already uh, a, a very high uh, number of political crimes in um, over land conflicts and, and crimes against environmental activists and land activists, landless peasants, uh, uh, the landless peasants movement has been hit by a very large number of uh, assassinations and, and, and overall violence. This will get much worse under Bolsonaro. There's absolutely no doubt about this. This, is, this will be a commitment of public policy under his administration uh, to be violent against, against the weak. My last question is, how can it be that Lula is pulling so far ahead and that Haddad is unable to replicate anything approaching that level of support? What, what could the PT in particular and the left in general have done to better prepare for this election? Did the PT have a viable plan B? And do they still have a shot? Where does the left go from here? I think what the PT did was, um, it was incredible. And what Lula in particular did was, was absolutely incredible. Someone who was being persecuted um, for years uh, managed to organize a political campaign on which he started out um, ahead and hit 40% in the opinion polls until he was put in jail, because that was just unacceptable to the elite. He was put in jail, and still he managed to make viable a candidate that was very uh, ranking very low in the opinion polls, and that, that we have the candidate going to the second round of the elections. Now, the problem is goes back further. Um, Lula is the most popular politician in Brazil. There's no doubt about that. He has an extraordinary political talent, and he has shown it in this election. This is the untold story of the election. An unbelievable capacity to connect with the masses of the population and to turn that into votes. And this decomposed to a large extent after Lula was put in jail. Now, um, so this is absolutely amazing. But why is it that Lula is so isolated being this amazing political figure? He is an amazing political figure, but why is there no one else? And this is because the figure of Lula decapitated the PT of all alternative uh, leaders, uh, turned the PT into a vehicle for his own, um, for the achievement of his own political ambitions. Even Dilma Rousseff was not a popular figure when Lula himself picked her as his presidential uh, candidate. Uh, and Dilma was not a talented, particularly talented political operator. She failed largely because of that. So Lula destroyed the possibility of a collective leadership of, of the PT. And now the party finds itself in a, in a political desert with very few operators of any talent and experience and prestige and reputation capable of saving the party. And then Lula himself uh, from this disaster. So once we have, uh, if we have uh, Bolsonaro being uh, elected president, the PT will fall into a deep crisis uh, of identity in, 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 a, in a crisis of um, personnel. And we can expect uh, the party to continue to decline. I think that is the trajectory. There is no ideology in the PT, uh, and it will find it very difficult to uh, validate its position uh, in the political system. It will continue to be a large party but a large party without any clear ideology except for this kind of shadowy uh, social democracy um, on which the PT has uh, thriven for, has thrived for, for a long time. Just to finish up, is there, does, does Haddad have a shot and where does the left go from here? The left will have to rebuild itself. 
the left has not been able to grow uh, apart from the PT. No political force on the left has uh, managed to prosper um, since the PT has been formed. There's a number of small organizations, but nothing uh, of uh, great significance. The left will have to reconsider uh, what is the working class in Brazil today and how to connect to this uh, working class uh, in a much more adverse environment than uh, than before, in a much more violent society, in a much more anti-left um, context with a violent ideology of the far right uh, preventing the left from, uh, from uh, prospering. Something new will emerge, but it may take a few years for this to happen. It won't be immediate. Alfredo Sadfilo, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Alfredo Sadfilo is a professor of political economy at SOAS, University of London. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once remarked after noting that, all have vanished like a phantasmagoria before the spell of a man whom even his enemies do not make out to be a sorcerer, universal suffrage seems to have survived only for the moment, so that with its own hand it may make its last will and testament before the eyes of the world and declare, in the name of the people itself, all that exists deserves to perish. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts, and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling other people about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a huge help. Mm-hmm.